and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 27th episode of the Not A Cast entitled The King's Bastard, an analysis of a Game of Thrones edit 6, in which Ned Stark has a frustrating small council session the reader receives our first inklings of who Stannis Baratheon is, and Ned visits an armorer and his apprentice, who turns out to be Gendry, Robert Baratheon's bastard. This episode is brought to you by all of our Lord's Commander, Mark N., Timothy W., Hayden J., Wolfman Zack, and Joe L. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Thank you, as always. Our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll be talking about all five published books, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. So, as we hinted at last week, we do have a new Patreon-only episode coming to you all who donate to us at the $5 or above levels on Patreon. And that episode is going to be all is going to be all about and that episode is going to be about none other than King Robert Baratheon, who he is, his military exploits, the emotions behind him and what makes him a great secondary character and why he's not necessarily why he's why, you know, why he's a bit more jaded and a bit more nuanced than what some people would have you believe. Yeah, I've been looking forward to doing an episode on Robert for sure. He's an interesting mix of very forefronted in this first book, and then, of course, he dies, so we have to fill in his his story and what matters about him for the rest of the series as he comes up in Cersei's chapters, as he's kind of remembered as a unifying force by the Brotherhood Without Banners. So there's there's a lot of a lot of different factors to discuss with Robert and a, a more complex picture than you might think initially appears. Yeah, it's going to be super awesome to do that. And I am super looking forward to recording that episode with you, sir. And I hope you folks are as well. So if you want to check out our Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash ASOIF. Again, that episode about Robert Baratheon, as well as the five previous Patreon-only episodes, are available to anyone who contributes $5 or more to us a month. So we appreciate everyone's kind donations. And if you want to check us out and you're not donating yet, please do so at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. So another tier of our Patreon is those who contribute $10 or more a month have the ability to ask us questions that we have to answer. And we have two questions for this episode, although one of them is going to be at the very end of the episode. It became such a great question that we decided to incorporate it into the main cast. So our first question comes from Sir Travis M., who asks, which era of Westeros or Essos history would you like to visit and perhaps live in and experience? Same thing for our own world history. Emin. Mm, that's a tough question. Uh, I'm going to answer the second part first, the, our own history. I kind of romanticize the, the interwar period in Europe to some extent, uh, when you have developments in modern technology and, and quality of life in this kind of brief period uh, before everything went to hell again. I think the part in Cloud Atlas in the book where he's a, there's the young composer just roaming through the Belgian countryside and stopping in the small cities, and I'm, I'm very kind of fond of that part of Europe. So I like to think of myself as a... a young rapscallion in, in that part of the world <laughs> in, in that particular time. As far as uh, Westerosian associate history, uh, that's I'm, I'm kind of pulled in a couple different directions. You know, the Summer Isles anytime would be great because they seem <laughs> to 
they seem to have the best civilization going on. But I would also, uh, of course, have an interest in being in the uh, area of Ashai once Relorism and the Cult of Starry Wisdom and the real crazy cosmic stuff of this world got going. Love, love to be a, an apprentice in the dark arts at that particular moment. Yeah, I could see where you would fit in real well with those folks out there in Ashai. I think that would definitely be your jam. Thank you, I think. <laughs> um, I was thinking about this question all week. And I was thinking, and I just, uh, last night, it finally came to me the, the best answer I could give. And that, and it's going to be a weird, it's going to be weird. So I was watching the movie Deadpool 2, and which is a funny movie, you know, kind of standard fare. Not a great movie by any stretch, but, you know, funny, adequate, stuff like that. And I was thinking, you know, I would probably be annoyed by Wade Wilson as a person and Deadpool. Like, to be actually be around him, he's, like, annoying and kind of bratty and uh, you know thinks he's like the most hilarious dude in the room but he's funny like as uh, on film and in um, in the movie itself and so I think of that similar to how I think about Westeros or Essos history in that it's a nice place to see from the outside looking in but I yeah. wouldn't want to be a part of really any of those periods of history or eras I mean I guess like if we're talking about an era of history that is the probably the best I would say like the reign of Jaehaerys the first would probably be the best place to live in because there was no significant warfare that was going on at the time although they have there's potential hinting that there was some conflict with the wildlings that the uh, the Targaryens maybe intervened in we don't actually know for sure hopefully Fire and Blood Volume 1 will clarify some of that for us um, for our own world history I do like your um, I, I like your inner war period uh, answer Emmett I think that's cool I think uh, you know I'm, I'm a Hemingway fan myself so I do love all of the books they wrote there about his experiences kind of projecting himself into his own fiction books and during the interwar period um, I'm gonna say for my own self I think I would have loved to have lived maybe not loved but I would have enjoyed living in something like Justinian Byzantium I think that would have been interesting to be in Constantinople like during the Nika riots or perhaps being in Rome during the time of Julius Caesar, I think would be an interesting time. I'm more of like an ancient history guy, more than like a more modern history person. Uh, so I, I tend to look at those places as of particular interest. I, I, I guess that's what I would go with there. But Westeros and Essos, I, I would not want to live in any of those times there. Jaehaerys, that's it. I think that maybe I'll live there. I would join Emmett in the Summer Isles for my summer vacation, of course. Uh, which I'm about to go on. <laughs> Have a vacation home there. That's that seems perfectly appropriate, sir. But yeah, that yeah. fits your historical background, so that's a uh, that's not too surprising. I like it. Yeah. So, thank you, Sir Travis M, for the question. So, this episode is all about Eddard Stark's sixth chapter, and this is its synopsis. Janice Slint, commander of the Gold Cloaks and a fuckboy, is complaining to the small council that the streets of King's Landing grow unruly as the hand's turning approaches. The King's turning, Ned corrects. Lord Stark still wants nothing to do with the tournament. But Janice isn't interested in what the tournament is called. There's just so many damn people in King's Landing now. For every night, there's craftsmen, men-at-arms, merchants, sex workers, and thieves. And the heat? It's so damn hot in King's Landing. The hand's turning was a bad choice. 
Janice rolls through a litany of crimes that have been committed the night prior. Riots, drownings, knife fights, a rape, fires, and robberies beyond count. And, of course, a woman's head was found floating in the rainbow pool of the Great Sept the night prior to the last night. How dreadful, Varys intones. And then Renly is then dismissive of Janice's concerns. Keep the king's peace. We'll find a new commander of the city watch. Janos grows more angry, talking about how even Aegon the Conqueror couldn't keep the peace. He needs more men. How many, Ned asks. As many as I can get my hands on, Janos replies. Ned tells Janos to hire 50 new gold cloaks and that Littlefinger will see to the coin. I will, Littlefinger asks. You will. You found 40,000 golden dragons for a champion's purse. Surely you can scrap together a few coppers to keep the king's peace. And Ned will send 20 of his own men to assist Janos in policing the mean streets of King's Landing. Janos, still and always a fuckboy, thanks Ned for the extra narcs and the council gets down to more council business. The hands turning is causing problems and Ned wants it over with soon. And he still hates that Robert continues to call it the hands turning. Besides, the treasury was burdened by the expense. Pycelle talks about how the tourney is bolstering morale in the city, and Littlefinger does a hollow Keynesian thing and talks about how the tourney is making people spend more money, thus bolstering the economy. And Renly, the terrorist, reminisces about how his brother, the future one true king, Stannis Baratheon, tried to outlaw brothels until Robert asked Stannis if he'd like to also outlaw shitting and breathing while he was at it. And then Renly, a shitty, shitty person, talks about how Stannis' daughter Shireen is ugly and wonders how Stannis ever got a child on his wife Selyse, given that he goes to his marriage bed like a commander marching to war. What a fucking asshole. But Ned isn't laughing. He wonders aloud when Stannis intends to return to King's Landing. Littlefinger japes that Stannis will return as soon as the sex workers have been scourged into the sea. But Ned has had enough of this council session and about all of this talk of horrors and prostitutes. He calls it to an end and then heads back to his chamber, summoning Jorah Cassell as he walks off. And as Ned continues moving towards his chambers, he returns to familiar thoughts about how he wishes he could be in Cat's arms, or listening to Rob and John cross swords in the Winterfell practice yard. And the cool days and nights that Winterfell offered were preferable to this wretched fucking heat in King's Landing. In his chambers, Ned gets into comfy clothes and decides to read the book that Grand Maester Purcell, an idiot, sent him. It's a ponderous tome with a pretentious-as-fuck title. The lineages and histories of the great houses of the Seven Kingdoms with descriptions of many high lords and noble ladies and their children. What an awful mouthful. But Ned's still interested in why Jon Arryn wanted the book. There had to be something in the pages for Ned to discover, but what? So Ned then decides to reread the pages on the on House Lannister, reading about how the Lannisters traced their lineage to Land the Clever, who tricked House Casterly out of Casterly Rock. Nothing really seems pertinent to Ned's investigation there, but then, just before he can go further, someone knocks on the door, signaling that Jory Cassell has arrived. Ned tells Jory about his promise of 20 men to assist the Gold Cloaks. One of Ned's men, Alan, will lead those soldiers, and the guards are to be peacemakers, not warfighters. Ned asks Jory whether he found the stable boy. Jory says, yeah, they found him. He's now a watchman. And what do you have to say? Not really much of interest. John Aaron gave the lads a copper on their name day, and Lord Aaron loved horses and didn't abuse his animals. He even gave them carrots and apples. Yum. Ned doesn't think this is very useful, and this leads him to reminisce about the other people who Ned's men interrogated. Sir Hugh of the Vale had been unhelpful and snobbish, refusing to treat with a mere guardsman and Jory, despite Jory being ten years his senior and a better swordsman than Sir Hugh. And then he demanded that Ned himself come and talk to him if he so wished. The serving girl that also was interviewed said that John Aaron had read a lot more recently, and the pot boy hadn't even spoken with John Aaron, but he was full of gossip about how John Aaron was quarreling with King Robert, 
how John Aaron only picked at his food, that the former Hand was sending his son to be fostered with Stannis on Dragonstone, how John Aaron had taken a sudden interest in the breeding of hunting hounds, and that John Aaron and Stannis had gone to a certain armorer to get a new suit of armor made. Back to the present, Ned asks whether the pot boy turned watchman had anything else to say. Well, John Aaron was as strong as a man half his age, and he'd been chilling with Stannis Baratheon a lot. Ned thinks this is strange. John Aaron and Stannis weren't exactly friends. They were cordial, sure, but they weren't buddies or anything like that. And Stannis himself had flown the coop to Dragonstone and hadn't been heard from. And where were Stannis and John Aaron chilling at? Um, a brothel? A brothel? The Lord of the Eyrie and the Hand of the King visit a brothel with Stannis Baratheon? Yeah, uh, apparently. And this is really strange to Ned, given what Renly said at the council session and what he knows of Stannis. Unlike Robert, Stannis was a different sort of man. Where Robert was licentious and crude, St Stannis was stern, humorless, unforgiving, with a grim sense of duty. Ned asks what, which brothel the two men went to, but Joy reports that the Watchmen didn't know. Perhaps others in John Aaron's entourage would know, but they're all back at the Eyrie now. Ned muses that anyone who might know what truly happened to John Aaron were now back in the Vale. The gods are truly vexing Ned about what happened to John Aaron. But what about Stannis? Should he be summoned? Not yet. Ned wants to know more information before he asks Stannis to come back. Not that Ned isn't desperately curious about why Stannis isn't there. Did he play a part in John Aaron's death? No, Ned, he did not. Or was he scurred? Probably not scurred. And then we get this great quote. It's one of my favorites from A Game of Thrones. Ready for this? Quote, Ned Stark found it hard to imagine what could frighten Stannis Baratheon, who had once held Storm's End through a year of siege, surviving on rats and boot leather, while the Lords Tyrell and Redwine sat outside with their hosts, banqueting inside of his walls. God, beautiful, brilliant, great work, George. Ah, yeah, it's definitely one of my favorite descriptions of him. And all this is even before we even meet him, too, which is really cool. Anyways, Ned's not about to sit around the Hand's Tower, not doing his noir investigation bit. He's off to see this armor that John Aaron and Stannis visited. Should they invite Renly, Jory asks? Nope. He wasn't invited on the original rides with John Aaron and Stannis. Besides, Ned's not sure really what to make of Renly. A few days before this chapter, Renly visited Ned and showed him a locket with a miniature of a young girl, asking if the girl reminded Ned of anyone. When Ned had said no, Renly was disappointed. You see, the locket was a painting of Marjorie Tyrell, daughter of Lord Mace Tyrell, and Renly was hoping that Ned would say that Marjorie reminded Ned of his sister Lyanna. But she hadn't, and Ned wondered whether Renly had grown a crush on a girl similar to his older brother's first love. Anyways, Ned and his men are off to find this armor who lives in a house above the Street of Steel. They journey through the stink of King's Landing, passing by mummers, children, women, and men who are fighting in the streets, who have women that then throw shit on them from above, the windows above. And then you see, there's also cart fenders there selling all sorts of fruits and veggies. But, you know, Ned's still, Ned's mind is still thinking about the lesson that Littlefinger gave him about the paranoia and how people are still watching him. So Ned is suspicious that Varys and his little birds are following him and watching him where he's going. But as they pass through the mud gate, there's a commotion. It's Lord Beric Dondarrion coming through the gate, bragging about how he's going to win the hand's tourney. Anyhow, Ned finally arrives at the armor's place. He notices the wood door to the army has a carving of a hunting scene in ebony and werewood. Hmm, that's kind of interesting. They're welcomed into the establishment and Tobamot enters. Now, this is a guy I actually really like. He asks if Ned wants armor for the hand's tourney, offering wine, and Ned just kind of lets him run his mouth. According to Tobo, his, his work is the best there is. He's made armor for Loras Tyrell, Renly Baratheon, and he knows the secrets on how to rework Valyrian steel. And he can make a direwolf helm for Ned Stark. Did you make a falcon helm for Lord Aaron? Ned asks. 
Well, no. John Aaron did come by, but he wasn't interested in buying arms and armor. Arms or armor. Instead, John Aaron was interested in the boy. That piques Ned's interest. He'd like to see the boy, too. Tobo then loses his salesman's touch and leads Ned back to the forge. There, they meet a boy who's about 14 years old, that is Rob's age, with blue eyes, thick, shaggy, unkempt black hair. Hmm, I wonder who he's related to. Tobo introduces the boy as Gendry and asks Gendry to show Ned the helmet he's making. Shyly, Gendry leads Ned back to the forge and shows him the helmet. Ned asks if he can buy it. Nope, not for sale, rich man. Tobo is horrified. Give it to him, Gendry. Hail to the no, it's for me, Gendry replies. Tobo apologizes to Ned, saying he'll beat the boy to teach him obedience and will craft him a helmet. But Ned's not about that. Ned asks what Gendry and John Aaron talked about. John Aaron asks questions about whether he was treated well and who his mother was. Ned asks what the boy told John Aaron, and Gendry tells him that his mother worked in a tavern and had yellow hair. And what about Stannis? Well, the future one true king just kind of glared at Gendry like he was some sort of rapist. Gosh, you just gotta love these moments where Stannis is introduced here early in the books, but I digress. Ned then tells Gendry to look at him, and he begins to see who the boy truly is. He dismisses Gendry back to his work, and he returns to Tobo, asking him who paid for his apprentice fee. Well, at first, Tobo tries to skirt around the truth, but finally he tells Ned that some stout lord who hid his appearance and face paid the boy's apprentice fee, but Tobo doesn't want any trouble. Yeah, no one does, but it kind of finds its way to you anyways, Ned says. Lord Stark then asks Tobo if he knows who the boy really is. Nah, he doesn't care. He just knows what he's told. He's his apprentice, and that's all that matters. Ned decides that he likes Tobo, good call Ned, and tells the armor that if Gendry ever wanted to wield a sword rather than make one, send him to Ned. As Ned walks out of the armorer's shop, Jack, one of Ned's men, asks if he found anything. I did, Ned told him, wondering. But what had John Aaron wanted with the king's bastard? And why was it worth his life? And that is the end of A Game of Thrones, Edward 6, a solid, fun, and intriguing chapter. Definitely one of my favorite Ned chapters so far. What do you think, Evan? I totally agree. No shock there. <laughs> I was a bit negative, of course, on the previous Ned chapter. Not negative, but I thought it was just good good instead of great. But yeah, for me, Edward 6 is a significantly more interesting chapter than Edward 5, despite being largely an extension of the same subplot, the investigation of John Aaron's death. Uh, that's because of the actual content. No offense to Pycelle and Littlefinger. Well, some offense. But the, <laughs> the aspect of the John Aaron investigation storyline that I find really interesting is how it pertains to the rising and falling fortunes within House Baratheon, which has been royal for but one generation and is already subject to multiple pressures from within and without. And that's what this chapter is really all about, is that family. As, we, as you were saying throughout your synopsis, we get much more on Stannis. We get much more on Renly. Robert is, of course, absent, but in the presence of Gendry, we see what he's been up to. And Gendry is himself identified by Ned as, as being Robert's bastard because he has that, that Baratheon look, that all-consuming Baratheon look with the, <laughs> the, the blue eyes like ice and that sheen of that black hair. And uh, that's, that's, how, that's how Ned knows. And you got that great closing line about the king's bastard. So that's, that's what I really like about this chapter is Martin digging into... Digging into House Baratheon, even though really only one of them, Renly, is present in this chapter, which is interesting that Martin manages to get into these family dynamics even when the people are not there. Just Ned's investigation kind of kicks that family drama up like it sparks off of his boots. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I do love the fact that it's only Renly who's there, but 
really the the star of the Baratheon. Well, again, again, I'm biased, but the star of House Baratheon in this chapter is Stannis, because Stannis is brought up over and over and over again. Now, Renly is there, of course. And Renly was there. The Renly Baratheon story. He was also there. Renly was there doing Renly shitty, awful things and talking about Shireen. We can talk about that a little bit later, but Stannis is definitely the kind of the star here. He's kind of the star off stage. I'm trying to think of like um, the best parallel that would that would be there. Maybe the Man in Black from Lost, who's kind sure, of sure. Or there's for a little um, while. Oh God, I'm a I'm a I'm a, a terrible human being for forgetting this. What's what's his name from Hamlet? Who shows up at the end? Uh, for it starts with an F. You know who I'm talking about. I can't believe I'm blanking on this. I don't know either. Uh, we'd have to. We're, we're gonna have to get shake, shakes of throne on here. Exactly. We gotta get some Luther yeah. Shakespeare. You, you, you know who I mean, populace. It's the prince. The from. It's it's the guy who, who who's been. He's hinted at the whole play that he's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Then he shows up at the end and takes over after everyone's dead. Uh, that's that's kind of like what Stannis serves as in this book, except he doesn't show up at the end and everyone dies anyway. I definitely thought my first time through this book that Stannis was going to show up at the end because he keeps being mentioned and he keeps being mentioned as having this important information and as being an utter badass. But nope, he shows up right at the beginning of the next one instead, which I, I think is an interesting structural move on Martin's part. Again, we got to go back to what George's original vision was in the trilogy and that the first book was going to end with the Red Wedding. So I, it, oh, yeah, again, we're, we're still, we're always going to roll our eyes at that because, but you can see here that Stannis was being set up to show up in this book. Now, you know, you don't know when this Ned chapter was written and whether George still had the trilogy in mind when he was writing, writing here, or whether he had potentially some of a Clash of Kings written at this point, or wanted to write more of Stannis's kind of backstory in and kind of introduce us to the character before he actually showed up on page. But it still matters that Stannis is here, and it matters that Stannis's absence is extremely an extremely important part of this chapter. Yeah, you can, regardless of when Martin wrote this material, of how he was considering the structure of the book at that point, you can tell that Stannis is already fully formed in Martin's head as a character. Yeah. Uh, and that... His, his temperament, his backstory, his relationships with his brothers, and even, as I'll argue a little later, I think there's some indications that Martin already has the Edric Storm plot in mind, uh, given mm-hmm. how he frames Gendry. But we'll get into that a little later. Before we get into any of that good stuff, we have the council session that kicks off yes. this chapter. We see right away that governing is a burden that Robert has shifted to Ned. As he said, the king eats and the hand takes the shit. And that's, that's what Ned has to do in this chapter more than anything else. And of course, the insult to injury, as has been emphasized before and is emphasized in this chapter, is that he's doing it all in Ned's honor, even though Ned wants no part in any of it. Which, as I've also said before, is a wonderful contrast with Stannis, that Ned gets the honors from Robert but doesn't want them. Stannis is starving for some scrap of recognition from Robert and never gets it. Yeah. So Ro- Robert really is just the worst brother. He's, he's, he's yeah. handling, handling these relationships so incorrectly. Ned, as you say, responds to dust up in King's Landing, the civil unrest by adding his own men to the gold cloaks, which is an extremely noble gesture on Ned's part, but it diminishes his own power. So it's a very kind of representative Ned move in that way, where I'm not saying it's dumb. I'm not saying he's laying down on the job the way a lot of the other counselors are, but it's 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 not something Tyrion would do. Let's put it that way. No, it's not something Tyrion would do. And it's also kind of a bit... Not dumb, but it, it does, and we'll talk about this more towards the end of the podcast, but it does put Ned at 
a disadvantage. And it really emphasizes to me again how Ned doesn't totally understand his role as the Hand of the King. He could have said, said to Renly, who is the Lord of Storm's End, Lord Renly, provide me a hundred men from the Stormlands. They will augment the city watch during the Hand's tourney. Lord Littlefinger, you will hire people from around the Crownlands to come and become permanent police officers or permanent gold cloaks in the case of, of Westeros to patrol the streets and keep the king's peace. But instead, Ned, being that very northern dude who believes in a very personal sense of justice, is going to send his own men to do the job. Because, you know, if he's not going to order other people to do the job that he himself or his own men wouldn't do. But it does really diminish his power. And, of course, Ned is putting the, his men and the other men that he tells Littlefinger to hire in the employ of someone who is a total fuckboy, Janos Slint. It really does emphasize his venality that the Ned, the, the only man who's taking his complaints seriously and is helping him do his job, is the one he stabs in the back later. But yeah, I agree. I mean, Renly's the master of laws. He's a considerably influential dude. He's a member of the royal family. He would be the logical one to put in charge of this. Or as you you know, have Varys go out and find some likely sellswords. Or just use it, again, to come back to Tyrion, use it as an opportunity to test these people. That's what Tyrion does so effectively in those early chapters of Clash of Kings. He comes up with ways to evaluate whether he can work with these people, whether he can trust them to even a minimal extent. The, the one, two, three gambit with his letters is only the most iconic example of that. And Ned kind of drops the ball in that regard. Uh, he, 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 does, he, he does his best to kind of test Littlefinger's advice, but even when he does, it ends up just showing, as you said, the limitations of the understanding of his office, like sending Jory to Sir Hugh, and then Sir Hugh briskly refuses him. You can send Jory with an order for Sir Hugh to show up. Send him with your warrant. Send, send Jory with a bunch of guards. Like, yeah, Sir Hugh's shallow asshole for not taking Jory seriously, but play into that. Your hand of the king. As, as Mel talks about the, the trappings of power regarding Jon Snow at the wall when he becomes Lord Commander, you know, these, these things are important if you want to wield your authority. And that ends up really screwing that over because I'm sure Sir Hugh had con- even more juicy information than any of the other members of John Aaron's household. It really could have broken the investigation wide open. And because because Ned doesn't quite understand his job, that hurts his investigation. I think there's a direct connection being made there. Sure, it definitely hurts his investigation. I think, though, that Littlefinger was kind of like, Ned, don't go yourself, send your guard over there. Meanwhile, Littlefinger goes to Sir Hugh and says, hey, be as difficult as possible as you can with this guy. And especially if Sir Hugh might not be incentivized to tell the truth, because if he did, and I suspect he did, he did play a role in John Aaron's death, he's not going to be like, ah, yes, I was the one who dropped the poison in the hand's chalice. That was me. Sorry, dude. My bad. You know, I think he's going to be more, yeah. Oh, not, that's not definitely true. I don't think he would have uh, spilled the beans completely to Ned, but I think even his evasions and what he gave up would be interesting for Ned's investigation. Uh, yeah, obviously that would require Ned picking up what's on, on what's going on. And again, you compare this to, to Tyrion. Tyrion was generally better as Hand of the King and getting information out of people, but Tyrion also goes everywhere with at least two extremely armed and dangerous men with him at all times. So yes. he's able to kind of use it to extract. And of course, Tyrion's tactics are brutal and underhanded a lot of the time. I'm not exactly sure. advocating for that, but it's difficult to outwit Littlefinger, but Ned doesn't especially seem to be trying. He's just he's just kind of he's kind of going with the flow instead of making his own his own interventions in the game, which again, yeah. you can kind of say him giving his soldiers to the city watch 
would be that, except that Ned's not using it to gain influence. He's not even telling Genoslint, okay, you have to put my men in positions of authority. You have to give them right. command posts, their experience, they're working for me. And then if he did that, that would be a way of gaining influence over the gold cloaks. That could have saved Ned's butt later on in the book. But it's, I it's mean, Ned's not thinking about gaining power in this way, even though arguably he should be. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but at the, in the Dance of Dragons epilogue, it's Kevin Lannister notes that Mace Terrell has put his own men into the City Watch, a hundred of his own men, if I'm not mistaken. I believe and that's the case, yeah. Does he put them into leadership positions? I'd have to go back and reread the epilogue, but it reads very much like Mace Terrell is ensuring that the City Watch is loyal to him. And he has the ability to reach down to the City Watch and utilize them for his own purposes because these are men who are loyalist to to the Reach, loyalist to Mace Terrell. That's something that Ned probably should have utilized here instead of just kind of carte blanche handing them over to handing them over to Jenislin saying just use them as, as you see fit to patrol the streets. It really does speak to Ned's character more than anything else, and that Ned is actually after governing the realm as opposed to utilizing the realm and the country for his own purposes and exploiting a organization like the City Watch to enhance the reputation and enhance the prestige and power of House Stark. But at the same time, Mace Terrell, who is not necessarily the smartest dude in the world, I think, you know, he's called Lord Oaf several times by his by his mother. He he does seem to have an idea of how to utilize and exploit some of the power structures in King's Landing for better or for worse, but I think it does help to solidify and potentially protect and safeguard him and his family who are all in King's Landing at the end of A Dance of Dragons. In the case of Ned, though, it's not necessarily the case. He is utilizing his own men. That puts him at a significant disadvantage as events are going to unfold in King's Landing as the story progresses. Yeah, Mace Terrell is certainly not as intelligent as his mother, but he has, to borrow a line from Bruce Bolton, he has a certain low cunning. <laughs> he knows how to enhance and advance his own power. He's, he's, he's certainly pretentious and not especially clever or secret about it, but he gets the job done. And yeah, I would imagine he put his men into the gold cloaks, maybe in positions of authority, maybe just to overwhelm, because 100 is significantly more than 20. So maybe he's right. just kind of trying to create a unit loyal to him within the city watch. But yeah, it's a difficult question of leadership we get into with moments like this with Ned, where on the, on the one hand, as you say, he's actually interested in, in governing the realm, which no one else seems to be. And in that regard, he, as we'll get into in a bit, he kind of becomes the stand-in for Stannis in this, in this council session. And it, it appears he's playing the role Stannis used to play when he was actually present in King's Landing. And Stannis has that issue, too, where, I mean, obviously the gold cloaks symbolize coins to a certain extent, all dressed up in gold. And, you know, putting sure. your men in the gold cloaks is like spending coins and they're associated with Littlefinger. And, you know, when people talk about why Stannis doesn't isn't able to assemble a vast army like Renly's or why, you know, he doesn't have lords and knights flocking to his cause. They generally talk about him as being uncharismatic and a grouch and not flattering, and that's certainly true. But the the bigger problem is that Stannis is not interested in being bought or buying people. He's not interested in bribery and corruption and material things, and that makes it really hard to grease the wheels and, and get yes. people on your side for that reason because a lot of people... A lot of actors in Westerosi politics at the top and at the bottom are being driven by that motive. Mace Terrell understands that and can play in that world. Tyrion understands that and can play in that world. Ned and Stannis aren't necessarily naive, but they're unwilling to play that particular game. Like I think about Stannis talks about it in terms of our fuckboy of the evening, Jano Slint. When he gets to the wall, there's that great Stannis moment when he's staring Janos down and going, yeah, you, you didn't just, you weren't just like 
pocketing a few coins here and there. You were creating sy- systemic corruption within the Gold Cloaks. Everyone was mm-hmm. giving you part of their take. You ruined that organization. And I wanted you dead for it, but but Littlefinger got in the way. And that's, for me, that sets up the dynamic around both Ned and Stannis really strongly. It's not just that they're grouchy, that they don't smile as much as Robert and Renly. It's that they're not corrupt in this way. Yeah. Stannis, you could argue, is religiously corrupt, but financially speaking, they're just not. And that's something I really like about both of them. But at the same time, Martin is pointing out it does make it harder. It's, it's, it's easier to get things done when you're greasing the wheels, when you're willing to do that including yeah, good policy. So that, that's something that, as, as Varus say, the honest and honorable man, I've seen so few of them. And when I see where, where it ended you up, Lord Stark, when I see where you ended because of your honesty and honor, I understand why. And that's, that's true yeah. stands too. It does, it's a trade-off. It is. You know, I love that first line from the Theon, Winds of Winter sample chapter, you are a worse pirate than Salador's son when he's talking with Tycho Nestoris. And that definitely speaks to... Stannis and his desire and need not to be bought and not really valuing money and gold. And and that is to his credit in most regards, but in some respects like this one, he's not utilizing the power that the treasury has. And, but the thing is, but the thing is, is that the treasury is being utilized by Littlefinger to spend on this tourney, the hands tourney or the king's tourney, as Ned would correct Janice Slint. Absolutely. And all the questions we're talking about, about governance and, and corruption and about what's good for the realm, kind of come to the, come to a head in this conversation about the tourney, which is an interesting little debate over governance and what you're supposed to do. Like it's there, all these little actors are weighing the cost of cost of public order against the coins flowing into coffers. Pycelle saying, and Littlefinger saying it, the realm prospers from such events, my lord, Grand Maester Pycelle said. They bring the great the chance of glory and the lowly a respite from their woes and put coins in many a pocket, Littlefinger added. And they're certainly true to a certain extent, but this is these aren't lasting public investments. Uh, they serve largely exploitative industries. Of course, Littlefinger is happy about this. He owns brothels. He owns inns. Most of that money is going into his pocket when he's talking about coins jingling in pockets. Yep. And that is, of, of course, not to suggest that I agree with Stannis that the sex worker industry should just be outlawed. I think that's absurd. And But, but the, the case that Littlefinger is making against that is not how dare you stigmatize sex workers. It's right. I, I, I'm going to exploit these people and make all the money off them. Like when Littlefinger quips about Stannis scourging all the the whores into the sea. Obviously, that sounds horrible. But Littlefinger is the one who has Jane Poole whipped as part right. of his quote unquote training of her. Stannis is not the one who does that. And so while Stannis no. is definitely cruel and misogynistic in a lot of ways, like when he talks viciously about Gilly at the wall, in terms of actual policy, he's the one castrating rapists. While Littlefinger right. is the one running these extremely exploitive industries, so I don't, I don't really take Pycelle and Littlefinger's take here at face value. I don't really consider the hands tourney to be a public good. I think representative of this is when Angai just pisses away his winnings from the archery contest instead of, as Jack B. Lucky suggests, you know, raising up turnips and sons. Like you know, that's that's what a lasting investment in, in the realm's good looks like, uh, not just bread and circuses. So I, th- I think you can see the hands turning as representative of Robert's rule and eventually Renly's rule as a whole. Obviously, Renly will be reintroduced as king at a tourney much like this. And Catelyn thinks to herself, this is madness. The realm is on fire. And here Renly is playing like a boy with a wooden sword. And that's kind of how yeah. Ned feels about the hands turning too. That what does he say when Sir Hugh dies? That this was this was unnecessary. War should not be a game. So yeah. while I understand the point Pycelle and Littlefinger bringing up, overall, I would come down as a hands tourney is not a good thing. Well, it's funny to me that Pycelle is talking about how it's lifting the morale of the city and of the peasants. 
But then what you get Janice Slint's report of riots, knife fights, people being murdered, a woman being beheaded and her head being floating in the pool at the Great Sept of Baylor. It, it may be lifting the morale of some people, of a certain class of people, perhaps the upper classes and the knightly classes and the lords and ladies. But the small folk, they might be interested in the tourney. And as we're going to see in the upcoming Sansa chapter, they're all going to be in attendance of the tourney itself. But they're also suffering as well from the crush of people that are there in King's Landing and the amount of crime that's being committed because of all the people that are there. And then Littlefinger is just his idea that it's putting coins in in everyone's pockets. It's putting coins in Littlefinger's pockets. And as we talked about in our episode on Edit 4, we know that it's not a lasting investment in the economy of of Westeros. It's all very much, and I call it in my summary, a hollow Keynesianism. In that the idea of Keynesianism being that you circulate spending, spending as as personal spending increases, the economy will improve. But here it's not spending on things like infrastructure or on roads or on buildings or on things that are going to be lasting and continue to provide value for the people in King's Landing. Instead, it's just simply a, a, tran- a transactional type of economy where you have people spending on prostitutes, people spending on food, things that are not necessarily going to last, that will drive demand in a lot of ways, but won't necessarily be a lasting demand because as soon as the tourney ends, the the country goes back to what it was before. And, you know, Littlefinger is happy because he's pocketing a lot of this money and he's able to use the money to do his own things, as we talked about in in Edward 4. And that's just going to be a recurring theme is that the people who are in the small council do not have the realm's best interests in mind. They have their own conspiracies going. Renly, Pycelle, Littlefinger, Varys. The only three people that are really invested in governing the realm are Eddard, Barristan to a lesser extent, and before both of them, Stannis Baratheon. Speaking of Stannis Baratheon, we get our first view of Stannis Baratheon and his role in House Baratheon and the fractured family dynamics therein. Yes, indeed. Uh, I agree with what you're saying about, about the tourney and not really being effective priming of the pump economically. It's a temporary spike in demand, really nothing much more than that. And while the small folks certainly do love the the tourney, I mean, the way Pycelle frames it is so telling that it, it gives the the wealthy a chance for glory, this kind of just empty performative thing. And it gives the lowly a respite from their woes, a respite from the woes that we could actually do something about, but we're not right. going to do. And it doesn't work long term. I mean, you see the small folk getting angrier and angrier, politically speaking, over the course of this series, culminating in the Brotherhood and the Sparrows. So it's not like this is effectively covering up the wounds of Westerosi society. For me, the tourney is represented maybe best when uh, Sandor tosses the little golden tine off of Renly's helm, his his kind of his his antler helm into a little bit of gold and he tosses it into the crowd and everyone starts to kick and fight and punch and scream yeah. over it. That's the hands turning. It's a little bit of gold you're tossing to the crowd but it doesn't solve any problems and it just makes them fight each other. So yeah, long long run uh, I don't I don't think it's a, a net positive, but yes, you mentioned Stannis, he definitely he comes up immediately in this council session. And yeah, it's in the context of family dynamics. And you get the sense that for the last several years at least, it's been Robert and Renly, aka young Robert, versus Stannis. That there's a clear kind of dividing battle line has emerged within House Baratheon. And that it's it's coming up over every issue. As you said, they were they were fighting over prostitution, which 
Again, I don't I think Stannis's policy there is terrible. Part of me wonders whether Stannis's attempt to ban prostitution is like a really over the top, mishandled way of trying to get Robert specifically to stop seeing <laughs> prostitutes. And like this is Stannis's extremely misguided attempt to pull Robert back from the abyss and start trying to get him to care about governing and be his best self. If that's the case, that's an extremely Stannis way of going about it because it's ineffective and singularly singularly wrong-minded on that issue. Again, when it comes to yes. gender and women in general, this, this is some of the worst in Stannis. On the other hand, you do get Renly's kind of vicious comment about Shireen. And of course, to keep her in proportion, there are worse sins than saying one nasty comment. Renly himself, I think, does more damaging actions later on in the book and in Clash of Kings. But it is representative of Renly's kind of appearance politics that he he wants to seem nice and seem like the favorite and seem like the best possible guy. But behind your back, that's not the case. Whereas Stannis will generally tell you to your face what he thinks of you, whether it's a positive or negative, And you have to just kind of weigh that. You know, it's, it's important, I think, to consider in terms of Renly's relationship with Brienne as well. Because, of course, Brienne is also widely mocked for her looks and uh, look, look down upon for being a uh, non-traditional female in some respects. Obviously, it's, it's not the same thing as Shireen, but they're talked about in similar terms. And the fact that Renly is, is so dismissive and glib about Shireen, I think indicates that Loras was telling the truth when he said that Renly thought Brienne was ridiculous and was just yeah. being nice to her in public. It, it would be like if we saw Stannis say in a John POV chapter, you know who I hate is smugglers. Smugglers are the absolute worst. Get all the <laughs> smugglers out of here. We, we might rethink Stannis' relationship to Davos, right? For me, this is the equivalent for that for Renly and Brienne, that if he's cutting down Shireen in this way, me thinks he was cutting down Brienne as well. Yeah. I mean, he's, it's, it's such a nasty thing to say about his own niece too, right? We can't imagine. Do you, do you have nephews or nieces? I do not yet, no. Okay. But I would never say such a thing. No, I wouldn't say anything. I mean, I've, I've, I have two nephews, and I would never say or think anything like that about them. It, it really speaks to who Renly is and that he's a surface level hero and that he appears to be the young Robert. He appears to have all of the qualities that Robert has without all of the blemishes. But the reality is that he, he has a nasty personality underneath of all of that. He's snobbish. He's rude. He's looking down on a, on a disfigured girl who caught grayscale and has no sympathy or compassion for someone like that. And to me, it speaks to the fact that he doesn't have any sympathy and compassion to people who are underneath of him in some way, whether it's physical appearance, whether it's nobility. He gets all of these folks from the Reach in A Clash of Kings to join on his side, and the Knights of Summer, and the people love him. But at the same time, they love him because of what he, what they see in him. When you get to the actual person behind what can be seen, it's not a nice person at all. And I think one of the things that I think was a bad decision on the show's part is that they didn't decide to show these uglier sides of Renly Baratheon. They didn't have this scene where Renly talks about Shireen being an ugly girl, a disfigured girl, and wonders how Stannis even had a daughter like Shireen. These things aren't in the show, and I think that's led to some folks to believe that the showrunners wanted to portray Renly as a, essentially a noble and good character, whereas the book's treatment of Renly is a bit different. He is a bit more of a villain in the books than he is in the show. Stephen Atwell describes him as a bad man with good PR, which I think is, is about right for Renly. He's, yeah. 
He's mastered the image politics, and that's important. Don't get me wrong. Again, you need to be able to do that. But when that's all you have, then I think you you don't really qualify as a step forward in terms of your your model of governance. And of course, there's the contrast in temperament that comes up that. Mm-hmm. One gets the sense that Stannis was just kind of constantly laughed at throughout the council and just kind of sat there grinding his teeth while Robert and Renly made fun of him, which is a long-lasting family dynamic with Robert and Stannis and seems like Renly has just kind of joined in the fun, so to speak. Uh, what's interesting is that Ned seems to now have adopted the Stannis role in that he's the straight <laughs> man in the council who's trying to get everyone to focus on the actual business of governing the realm and everyone else is just kind of making fun of him and going back to making money off of everything. Uh, at the end of the council, when Stannis, uh, Ned says, I have heard quite enough about whores for one day. That's, that's a very vintage Stannis <laughs> sort of line. I imagine Stannis ended many councils thus. Ned does not join in the laughter about Stannis and Shireen, and in, instead says he wonders when Stannis intends to re- return, indicating that Ned kind of wants Stannis around more than even for just his information, that he feels kind of a, an affinity in terms of their role on the small council and how that's developing for Ned. There's also a nice little irony in that Renly talks about Stannis going to his marriage bed like a man, marching to battlefield, you know, determination to do his duty, even though that's Renly will go to his marriage bed that way because, of course, he yeah. doesn't actually want to sleep with Marjorie because he's gay. So yeah. he, he will be doing his duty as well in that regard. So that's that's a that's a nice little twist. Yes, it is. And I do love that scene from season two of Game of Thrones, which was not in the books where Renly has to get himself super, super drunk in order to approach Marjorie in their bed scene. And uh, of course, Marjorie then is like, well, you know, you don't have to do anything right now. Or if you want me to bring Loras here, that's also fine, too. We can we can do that. We can work. It is kind of a little bit a little bit icky um, that Marjorie would have her own brother in the bedroom with with Renly. Um, but that's that's who who Renly is, is that he is definitely that type of person who will has to get super, super drunk in order to fulfill his marriage duties. And it also speaks to uh, Westeros as well. And to be fair to Renly, that does not accept people who are homosexual as equal and as valued members of society and that people like Renly have to stay in the closet in order to progress and in order to be recognized as martial military and good men. And I think that does speak a lot to Westerosi society at large. Yeah, I think there's 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 kind of a wink nudge thing going on, I think, with homosexuality, at least along among the among the lords. They're they're fine with it as long as you do your duty by the family. You make your heirs. I certainly don't get the impression that anyone in House Terrell minds that Loris is gay. I think yeah. it, they're, they're, as long as Renly pulls off what he needs to, and I think that's what the show is getting at with Marjorie's kind of uh, pragmatism to a fault, so to speak, in that scene. That it's just, it's it, it's a task they need to get done. Which, again, is yes. actually similar to how Renly is describing Stannis looks at sex. So, yes. uh, they, as always with Stannis and Renly, they're complete opposites in some ways, but if you start digging deeper, they have a lot of things in common. Tyrion has that great line in Clash of Kings about... They're, they're, you know, completely different. And at some level, they're just, they're exactly the same and neither one could ever stand the other. <laughs> That's how House Baratheon works. They're all exactly alike, but completely different. And that has, has made it impossible for them to deal with each other. But uh, as, so as the chapter goes on, Ned starts, again, his investigation kind of kicks up the dust on what's going on within House Baratheon. He hears more and more about Stannis being involved in John Aaron's investigation. And this leads him to filling us in about who Stannis is. First describing, as you said, as Grayman with an unforgiving sense of duty, but then you get that awesome, awesome siege backstory. Yes. As with you, I just love the way Martin phrases that and writes that about 
eating rats and boot leather and sitting in the castle and staring at the Tyrells and Red Ones feasting outside. It immediately gives you this impression of intense uh, toughness and stubbornness, a willingness to persevere despite the odds. An accomplished military presence, because that's that's a quite a thing to accomplish at his age. Stannis was young when this was going on. I mean, obviously, it's different in Westeros where Rob crowns himself at a uh, fourteen or fifteen, but still, yep. Stannis was what eighteen, I think. Eighteen years old. Yep. Was going on, you know, no prior battle experience, and it's it, it fits Stannis because the the heroism of holding a castle under siege is not the kind of heroism that translates to songs well. It's not the no. kind of Robert and Renly heroism. It's it's not killing Rhaegar on the Trident. It's it takes an intense force of will, and and uh, it takes charisma because Stannis is not uncharismatic. No Baratheon is uncharismatic. It's in the genes. They're all intense presences. Stannis is just of a different kind than Robert and Renly. Robert and Renly are for when things are going well. When they're wolves at the door, Stannis is the kind of guy that unites people, I think, actually really effectively, more effectively than he's given credit for. And I think the Siege of Storm's End really emphasizes that, that he, he held his men together, and he held his men together because he starved with them. And that's that's something that impresses Ned. That's something that kind of draws them together. And you, as Ned gets more and more disappointed with Robert and Renly, he starts looking to Stannis more and more as kind of the, the last hope for House Baratheon. Yes, he really, really does. And I just love how George builds the legend of Stannis Baratheon in this chapter and throughout A Game of Thrones is that he's Ned does see him as the potential savior figure in greater or lesser extent. But I do love the the backstory of Stannis Baratheon and he was a hard man and had a sense of duty and the different things that help augment our understanding of the dude before he actually appears in the first pages of A Clash of Kings in the prologue. And it's really cool how this guy is being built up for a book that he doesn't even appear in. And I also love that line from Littlefinger where he talks about Stannis and Renly as the silk glove and the iron gauntlet. And that is very much describing who Stannis Baratheon is as a person. You had mentioned earlier that one of the things about the two brothers is that they're dislike in a lot of ways, but they're similar in some ways. And one of the ways that they're similar is that they both have discovered or seem to have discovered something about the twin sets that's been going on in King's Landing between Jamie and Cersei. Yes, indeed. I love that silk glove and iron gauntlet line. I think I think it's actually from Varys at the in Ned's last Oh yeah, chapter, you're right. It is Varys, yeah. In the Black Cells. It's a great description. And it, it basically boils down to good cop, bad cop, if you think about it, that description. That's that's Renly and yes. Stannis to a T. If they could ever work together, if they could ever get past the fact that they cannot stand each other, they really could be a hell of a team. That's one of the sad things about House Baratheon. You could see them working actually really well together with Robert as king, Renly as the PR guy, and Stannis as the attack dog. Again, I was comparing um, Sam and Dickon as a potential Duran oberyn pair, if Randall had been interested in fostering that. And I think you can see the same kind of lost potential with House Baratheon. But yes, the obviously the plot, that's this that we've talked about Stannis as a character, the plot relevant stuff is about the investigation that John Aaron was undergoing, the investigation that led him to the revelation of the Twincest, or rather just proof of the Twincest. So yeah, I think I am with you and I think Renly knew all along about the Twincest. Yep. Uh, we can get more into details about why as we go through this series and into Clash of Kings. But in this chapter, I think the case for Renly knowing is that his plot with Marjorie comes up in this context. As Ned is thinking about and following up on the steps of John Aaron and Stannis' investigation, he thinks about Renly's ploy with Marjorie and seeing if she looks like Lyanna. To me, that's it comes off like the author is saying, okay, here's what Stannis did when he found out, and here's what Renly did. Here are their strategies for dealing with the twin cest. And 
As we said, they have some things in common. They both went to powerful Lords Paramount to secure support before moving openly against the Lannisters. Stannis went to John Arryn, Renly went to Mace Tyrell. Renly's play, however, is rooted in Robert's nostalgia. He's going to play on Robert's uh, love for his lost Lyanna, the image of Lyanna. And just like Renly is the image of young Robert, the ghost in a golden crown, as Catelyn calls him. So it's this purely backwards-looking, nostalgic appeal that is certainly... It's certainly rooted in Robert's psychology. It would probably work, but it's not It's not fixing the problem. It's not getting at why Robert is, is ineffective as king. It's not getting at how he allowed this corruption to happen. It's just kind of repeating it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stannis, by contrast, to, to borrow another quote from him, offers cold, clear water. Just, just the revelation of truth to Robert. And uh, John Aaron is, is just the natural candidate to help him because he's hand of the king and because Robert trusts him. And there's, there's, no, there's no sense of real ambition there, I would argue. I'm sure people will argue against that. I know plenty of people will make the case that Stannis abandoned Robert and just wanted to be king after he found this out. But for me, he never would have gone to Jon Arryn if that was the case. Yeah, if all Stannis wanted out of this was the crown, just keep quiet as soon as you find out about the twincest. Don't tell anyone, wait for Robert to die, and then reveal the truth. But the yeah. fact that he went to Jon Arryn, who was clearly getting ready to tell Robert, well, at that point, Robert's presumably going to crush the Lannisters and then marry again. Because he's still alive, so Stannis is not, in fact, setting himself up to be the heir there. So I think that, I think you can see his motives are, well, certainly not pure, are not exactly driven by ambition. I think Renly, you get more of the sense he's trying to trying to gain something out of this. He's, he's got a hustle going. But yeah. to give him credit, it's good, it would be more effective on Robert. The, very, the reason Stannis has to go to Jon Arryn at all is because he knows Robert won't believe him. Because their relationship is so soured and because Stannis isn't offering anything. As Cersei is that line in the Feast for Crows where she says she's heard reports Stannis is, has demanded the swords and silver of White Harbor. For which she offers, well, nothing. And then she thinks to herself <laughs> that she's, she's so glad the stranger carried off Renly because he's be harder to deal with. And that gets at what we were talking about earlier that Stannis is being less kind of corrupt and ambitious than Renly is both more admirable and less effective. It's, yeah. It makes us like him more, but it also means it's harder for him to get the job done. But I think the overall takeaway I think you get from all this is that things have gone badly awry within House Baratheon. That yes. if you look at Stannis' backstory, he starved for Robert. He, he tells Davos in Storm of Swords, it was a difficult choice, my blood or my liege, I chose blood. I chose him. And I was ready for him. Like, if all Stannis wanted was Storm's End, if he was truly just ambitious to his core, all he had to do when Mace Tyrell showed up with his army during Robert's Rebellion was say, I surrender. I disavow right. my brother. My brother is a vile traitor. I am loyal to my king, Eris. And like that, Stannis is the new lord of Storm's End. That's all right. he would have had to do, and then he would have gotten to eat. But yeah. instead, he, he starved. He held that castle and he starved. An act of courage and love that Robert gave him zero credit or recognition for ever once. Certainly, Stannis takes his resentment in terrible directions. Again, that glare at Gendry, I think, is foreshadowing of what he'll do with Edric Storm. But it's just, it's sad that it's gotten to this point where Stannis once put it all on the line for Robert. And now they're fighting in council and Renly's mocking him behind his back. And Stannis is glaring at Gendry because he looks so much like Robert and Renly. It's just, this family has clearly fallen apart. Hey, man, brother. That's definitely who who Stannis is. And I think you make a compelling case for the fact that Stannis did love Robert. And he later claims that he loved Renly as well, although they're bitter enemies, as we're going to find out in Clash of Kings. 
But I do love that line from A Clash of Kings from Catelyn's fourth chapter, where Catelyn asks, why did you stay silent? And Stannis is like, I did not stay silent. I brought my suspicions to John Aaron first. And I think you make a great point that Stannis did not want to see Robert die, that Stannis was invested in keeping his brother alive up to a point. We did talk about this in that episode with LML about Daenerys' third chapter, where Stannis perhaps should have tried to inform Robert of what was going on if John Aaron was dead, and maybe it was Stannis' duty then to his brother to let him know what was going on instead of heading out off to Dragonstone. But at the same time, you kind of get the sense here in this chapter that he was trying to help his brother to the end, and only when he felt that all all recourse was abandoned to him that he headed off to Dragonstone. So, I, I mean, you could still make the case, in my opinion, that Stannis perhaps should have stuck around King's Landing, but then again, you wouldn't have the story that we have in you know, Game of Thrones, where you have all of the pieces of Ned's investigation going on and all of the evidence there for Ned to try and put it together. And it's only at the very end of the book that he finally figures out. Instead of having Stannis, you know, come up to Ned in, you know, his fourth chapter, be like, by the way, Ned, here's what's actually <laughs> happening here in King's Landing. Right, right. Wouldn't have made a very good story, I don't think. We would not have ha- we would not have 15 Ned chapters if that were the case. No, that's an excellent point. And you're completely right about Stannis after John Aaron dies fleeing back to Dragonstone. As you know, everything good about Stannis leads to everything bad about him and everything bad about him leads to everything good about him. It's always <laughs> intertwined and really difficult to separate because yeah, the reason Stannis left King's Landing was partially out of fear for his life from the Lannisters. But as Ned says, what could frighten Stannis Baratheon? So the other part of that is resentment that Robert named Ned his hand instead of Stannis, which is partially practical because that's a sign to Stannis that he's not going to be believed, right? That he was right to doubt because even in this moment, Robert isn't trusting him, isn't turning to him. So, you know, for him, that must feel like a death sentence. But it's also... Because, yeah, Stannis has, has Stannis did so much of the unrewarding, unglamorous work of making Robert's regime a reality. Holding mm-hmm. Storm's End during the siege, taking Dragonstone from the Targaryens, making Robert's response to Balin Greyjoy's rebellion possible yep. by smashing Victarion's fleet, doing that important work. Otherwise, Robert's invasion of Pike wouldn't have been possible, is what I was trying to get at there. Mm-hmm. As, as far as we can tell, again, Stannis was never not just rewarded with honors and lands, but never recognized, never affirmed. He, Stannis says that line, that heartbreaking line when he's first introduced, when he talks about the siege, and he says, when Robert came down, did he take my hand and say, thank you, brother, whatever would I have done without you? Like, that's what Stannis wants more than anything yeah. from Robert, is that recognition, and it just never mm-hmm. gets it. So while I think that resentment leads to some pretty unpleasant places, I think what's driving it, the emotional core of it, I think is both genuine and relatable. That he, he really was screwed over and he really he deserved better from Robert and never got it. Yeah, you're absolutely correct that he definitely deserved better from Robert and never got it. But at the same time, you could see why he never got it at the same time because him and Robert and Stannis were so freaking different, man. Like they're, they're night and day and Ned kind of thinks about that, about how Robert is, was one way. He was licentious. He was slap you on the back and drink a bunch of beers and chill with you and pick up some chicks and stuff like that. Where Stannis was grim sense of duty, honor, this kind of diff- very different person than who Robert was. But the thing is, is that Stannis's investigation of the twin cess leads him to the Street of Steel and leads him to Tobo Mott. And he takes John Aaron over there to investigate the truth about Robert's bastard. Yes, indeed. I like that scene where Ned is riding towards the Street of Steel. It feels like a microcosm of the city as a whole, this little trip he takes, 
where he talks about how the, the, the street comes up from the the river gate, more commonly called the mud gate. So you get the sense of like the city kind of being burnt, born from the river and the mud, just kind of struggling out onto land and gradually coming into existence. And he, it starts with like the masses at the bottom of the hill. There's there's kids running around. There's food merchants hawking their wares. There's the kind of the less affluent smiths with their, their humble little setups. And then, you know, Ned goes up the hill and everything gets grander and grander until you arrive at, at Tobomot's armory, which is just this elaborate, fanciful place with uh, his doors of ebony and weirwood like he's in the goddamn house of the undying. He's, <laughs> he describes his armor works as if they're magic, that only he knows the secrets of getting the deep green. Like, you know, you can't have paint and enamel. Those are the, the tools of, of low craftsmen. I'm a true artist. And of course, you know, he's, he's hiding a king's bastard in the back. So you get the sense yes. that this this is the top of the hill where even even the, the the lowly forge boy has royal blood. Yeah, yeah, I do love that idea of a city where your status, your economic status, is often demonstrated by where you're living, whether you're living in the low parts of the city or the high parts of the city, and of course those two, the two highest parts of the city being the Great Sept of Baylor and the Red Keep being the two highest parts where they have the the most amount of wealth is being concentrated there. But I do think that's a great catch on your part that Tobomont is up at the top of a hill. As we see in his little armorer's house, he's got some pretty fancy trappings, doesn't he? He's got those ebony and weirwood doors. And, you know, we were talking about this in pre-production, so I might as well say it here. There was a theory a few years ago before the Mercy chapter came out that Tobomont was the same person as Isambaro, who is introduced in the Mercy chapter. Because people had thought that there was a connection between the two of them and the door that Arya travels through in her final Dance with Dragons chapter. But the Mercy chapter kind of exploded that theory. They're not the same person at all. But it is very curious to me that Tobo has Werewood and Ebony on his door. And Werewood, as we know, is the traditional wood that's associated with the old gods and with the children of the forest to a less to a greater or lesser extent. And I do like that catch, too, that he's almost like an undying person, too. But one of the things that's interesting about Tobo, as we're going to discover as the story progresses, is that he does know how to rework Valyrian Stale. He's one of the few people in the world that knows how to do that. The Forges of Kohor is where that is primarily done. And that is where he states that he got his training on how to rework Valyrian Stale. But it is it is a skill. It's almost like magic, right? Because Valyrian Steel is a bit kind of magical, right? So he has to have some sort of, like... If not magic himself, if he's not magic himself, then he has to have some understanding a little bit about how to actually utilize this steel, which is a bit magical in its properties. That's a great point. He's he's if he's not magical, he's magic adjacent. Uh, he's he's yes. like he's like Kybern in that way. But yeah, it's Valyrian steel is kind of the meeting point between the secular and the spiritual. That way, it's like it's it's practical it's a sword to use it to kill people but it's also yeah it has this kind of sense of, of sorcery and, and and the history of, of valyrian magic surrounding it and which which fits perfectly with having gentry there because of course the uh, king his king's blood will come up as, as a sorceress property and he possesses that so yeah tobomod is kind of this his, his armory is kind of this this meeting place between the ex- extremely a practical, uh, everyday, physical world in the more metaphysical plane, which, you know, the metaphysical plane does not come up much in King's Landing. It's generally just kind of around the edges where the, the story focuses on the politics. But this is one of the cases where it kind of pokes its head out and lets you know it's mm-hmm. there. Yep. But so, yeah, Ned arrives at Tobamot's armory. And this is uh, where I think I and, and I enjoy Ned as a detective more than I ha- uh, do in other <laughs> parts of the book because he's, 
And he's canny, and he's, I like that he's canny in kind of a passive way. Uh, there's that great moment when he's just letting Tobamot talk. He says to himself that if you just stay silent and let men talk, eventually they'll come out with what you want to know. And indeed he does. He asks to see the boy, even though he doesn't know who the boy is, but he doesn't give away his ignorance. He's, he doesn't go, the boy, like, like a furrowed brow. He just says, the boy. <laughs> I would like to see the boy as well, which is a, a nice <laughs> kind of canny move. It shows that Ned does have some skills and, and you know knows how to deal with people. And then at the end of the chapter, he's talking to Tobamot and says, you know, you know who the boy is. That is not a question. Again, this very kind of polite but firm, quiet, stoic. Uh, I think about the movie Heat and how there's like the, the contrast in that movie between like Robert De Niro being his classic buttoned up Robert De Niro, my face tells nothing mm-hmm. self and Al Pacino just like hamming it up all over the all over the screen. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that contrast is great. But Ned is definitely more in the De Niro camp of those two as a detective. Yes, he is. And it's great, too, that he has someone like Tobo who is so interested in talking and he just talks and talks and talks and talks and Ned just kind of lets him talk and, you know, absorbs the information that Nobo, Tobo, Nobo, that Tobo is telling him. And it's kind of interesting because I, I, I instantly liked Tobo as a character when I was re- rereading this chapter and reading it for the first time as well a few years ago. But the question remains is whether he's actually an asshole or an angel. And I think that's interesting, right? I think, you know, initially... He's kind of like this dude is like, ah, well, I made armor for Loras and I made armor for Renly and I got that green in without painting it on there because I'm just a master at everything. And would you like to buy some armor for yourself? I can make you a direwolf helm and that you would that would make you know, the children scream, which I think is kind of interesting, too, that there's a potential contrast with um, and parallel with Sandra Clegane's helmet, the, the dog helm. Game of Thrones season one, episode one. When Sandra Clegane is coming through the gates of Winterfell, Arya Stark notices him and she instantly shies away from that horrible, terrible helmet. You do kind of wonder, was that a work of Tobomat? Not really sure. I guess we can look for more hints as we go on, but I think potentially, right? I had never considered that. What a great concept. Uh, you know, I never thought about when Sandor actually gets that helm. and thats I don't think that's ever actually addressed. So that's, that's an interesting question. Um, obviously, it's an expensive place, but Sandor works for the Lannisters, so... I'm sure, sure. I'm sure. I'm sure a word in the right ear could, could get that done for him. But yeah, after a chapter that's all about like the contrast between the Baratheons and the Renly with his friendly ways and uh, easy smiles, which I love as a description from Ned because that doesn't mean friendly. Friendly ways is not friendly. It means right. you, it means you've taught yourself to be friendly. You have a way of being friendly. This is your strategy. It's not actually being a nice person. It's a performance. Right. So initially, Tobamot seems like he's fitting into that dynamic, right? That he's 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 acting. He even talks about Renly's armor and Loras's armor. So he's he's already linked to this kind of more performative world. And uh, Ned is saying that oh, John Aaron used to think of armor as just steel and plate, like no nothing fancy, no ornaments. So that <laughs> and that links him nicely with his co-investigator Stannis. So you're being primed by everything that's come up in the chapter so far to dislike Tobamot for that reason. He's very kind of obsequious to Ned. In the same way that, like, Picel was, kind of over-talking, enjoying the sound of his own voice. Although, you know, I'm, I'm the last person to criticize anyone about that. But <laughs> g- given how much I rant on this here podcast, I can relate to Tobomot in that sense. And then, you know, when uh, you mentioned the synopsis, there's that line where his the salesman's patter drops and his friendliness has evaporated. So you think, oh, he's false. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a dishonest, ungenuine person who's just putting on a performance for Ned. I don't like him at all. And then they go back to meet Gendry. And when Tobomot is, Gendry refuses to give up the helm. And Tobomot's like, oh, you know, he he profits from some beating just like raw steel. And you're like, boo, we hate you. 
<laughs> com- compared to Ned, who's being really like paternal and kind to Gendry, like saying he's done me no offense. I, I would be honored if you would let me buy it. He's tr- you know talking to Gendry like a, like a human being. Like yeah. this is Ned Stark, the man who brings his servants to dinner. But so after all this setup, though, at the end of the chapter, Ned has this little conversation with Tobomat about who paid his his fee. Where is he from? You know who he is, right? And Tobomat starts getting nervous and doesn't want to give up any information and eventually says, I don't care where he came from. He's my apprentice and I'm taking care of him. And that's that really leads me to reevaluate everything that happened is, oh, he's just protecting the kid. That's yes. why he's freaking out about him defying Ned Stark because he doesn't want the kid in danger from the hand of the king. That's why he's being deflective because he doesn't want this kid's identity exposed and, you know, so that he will be manipulated or I'm sure he's heard the stories about what Cersei has done to Robert's bastards. Oh, Maybe yeah. He doesn't want that to happen to Gendry. And what a what a wonderful thing for this seemingly soulless, obsequious, money performance obsessed man to have found something he really cares about. He's going to keep this kid safe. And that's what leads Ned to respect him. He says he decided he liked Tobomot, Master Armorer. <laughs> and that's that's yeah. just wonderful. And that connects to, you know, a recurring theme in the, in the series we've talked about before about safeguarding kids and about caring more about them as people than as like artifacts of royal blood. It's great that it like what Tobamad is saying is the best life for Gendry is that if he doesn't know who he is and he doesn't know he's a king's bastard, that he should he should embrace the life of a, a, a smith. And, and, you know, what's that line Jamie says about Sansa that if she's lucky, she just ran off to wed some innkeeper smith and fill his home full of children and forget that she was ever a Stark. Yeah. And I, I think you, you can see that with Gendry, that while noble blood certainly made this possible for him. It's the only reason he ever got to work at the Forge in the first place. It's also kind of a curse that he has to escape. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I think it's uh, interesting, and I, I have to imagine this is true. I'm just going to keep it that way. That his threats to beat Gendry are all just talk in much the yes. same way that his his arrogance and his salesmanship is just talk too. That he's he's not, he's he's full of hot air, but he's full of hot air because he is trying to impress Ned Stark at the beginning of this chapter, but the end of this chapter is full of hot air because he thinks that's what the nobles do, right? That they would beat some peasant who would dare speak back to them. But at the same time, you get the sense that he's just this friendly, actually genuinely fatherly figure to Gendry and that he wouldn't beat him in the end. Maybe he'd even like take him aside and put his arm around him and be like, hey, good job, man. Way to tell that fucking noble what was up. You know? <laughs> sure. I can see it. I mean, it reminds me of Yorin with Arya, where Yorin actually does beat Arya at the beginning of the Clash of Kings. But there's this constant sense that he is thinking of trying to protect her and keep her safe from the untrustworthy men around her. And that is yeah. just trying to impress that rule upon her. Again, that doesn't make it any less unpleasant when he's beating her until she bleeds. But it's 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 a, in terms of motivation and what's driving these men, I think Martin is trying to suggest that your initial revulsion or your initial dislike can easily be undercut by a sudden revelation of motive. And of course, that's something we'll get into when we talk about, you know, much more important characters like Stannis or Jamie. That's another big example of that. But it, Martin is clearly playing that same game with a minor character like Tobomot. And I think that's that's great. Mm-hmm. I agree. So that kind of leads into our likes and dislikes for the chapter. Uh, one small detail I enjoyed on reread was how Varys is talking in council and Janice Lint is talking, going through the butcher's tally and brings up uh, the woman's head floating in the rainbow pool, which is just such a great Song of Ice and Fire image, like that contrast of the loveliness with, of the rainbow pool with this hideous image of a 
uh, a head floating in it. And Varys goes, oh, how dreadful, Varys shuddered. He likes, he's like got the hand to the forehead. He's like, fetch the smelling salts. Uh, I love that Varys does this, his tendency to swoon at unpleasant news in an obviously fake way. My favorite example is uh, when he reports to Tywin that he can't find Tyrek, and he's like in tears, even though he's almost <laughs> certainly the person who snatched Tyrek in the first place. Yep. But I like this about Varys. It works on a number of levels. It's him playing his role, being obsequious, being the, the master of whispers. It fits him. But it's also him kind of being sarcastic about it. Like, oh, how dreadful. Like, he, you know, but he knows that most of these people in the room don't care and that Janos Lent is super venal. So it's like he's he's pretending to have he's pretending to have scruples that he knows that no one in the room actually does, basically. And he's kind of he's making fun of them in that way. And it's 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 interesting to contrast that with his his willingness to cut the tongues out of children or his his distaste for the sight of his own blood we don't really get into Varus as a character until the next Ned chapter, and I really love their conversation. Yes. But coming back to it on reread, knowing much more as we do about Varus and what he's after and what he's like, his own performance, much like Renly's or Tobo Mott's, I think is really interesting. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I think that Varus here is overacting and intentionally overacting so that... He's a ham. Yeah, he's hamming it up, but it's almost like a parody version of, of himself. I don't know if you've seen some... I'm trying to think of a, of a good example in, in modern cinema. Kind of a Nicolas Cage being super Nicolas Cage in, in movies type thing. Yeah, it's it's his version of Face Off. That's great. Uh, right. Yeah, Var, like like he says, I have to play the role. This is what the Master of Whisperers is, and he, he plays it to the T. But he does it in such a way that he know that he's acting. And, and Ned can, you, you get the sense that Ned gets that he's not actually like, oh, how dreadful. Like, Ned knows for sure that he's just playing a part and playing a role. Oh, that's kind true. Of a good and, character. And Ned does, dislikes Varys for that reason, but will kind of respect him by, at the end of the book in the Black Cells once he starts realizing what's actually beneath that mask and that it might be both more compelling and more frightening than he had imagined. Like when, when Varys says about Stannis in that conversation, there is no creature on earth half so terrifying as a truly just man. You know he's thinking about himself too, that he thinks yeah. he's describing himself as well. And that while Ned knows Varys is lying, he doesn't know at this point what it is that Varys is hiding, but he will find out. True that. And speaking of what Ned is going to find out, see, my like for this chapter is going to be the investigation because, see, Emmett, this is cool, right? <laughs> it's so cool that Ned's this noir investigator detective uh -huh. chatting with Tobo Mod, thinking about what's up with Stannis, reading the book and having all of the stuff kind of in his face right there. You got all the clues as to what John Aaron was investigating and all the evidence there as to the reality behind the parentage of Cersei's children, but George R. R. Martin is holding back just enough that the answer is just outside of reach of both the first-time reader and Ned Stark himself. So, what what, what do you say to that? It, this, the investigation is great. I mean, you can go on about get all sappy about Lyanna and the emotional beats of Ned's chapters, <laughs> but look, man, like you gotta give the investigation plot some credit here, at least in this chapter. But I, I agree with you again about Edward Five, but Edward Six, it's good stuff, man. I hear Agreed. your sass and choose to ignore it. <laughs> no, like I say, I think the, this chapter handles the investigation plot line better than Edward V did. Uh, with me, with my bleeding heart, yeah, my focus for Ned is still on his kind of character internal monologue stuff, which we don't get much of in this chapter. And I look forward to that kind of returning to the focus when we get to the Tower of Joy and his 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 memory of Lyanna saying, you know, love is sweet, but it cannot change a man's nature. That's the stuff I really love about Ned. But yeah, he's he's a cannier detective in this chapter, and I, I I like the content itself more. As I was saying, all the yeah. stuff about House Baratheon and their dynamics, Tobamot's armory. For me, that's more interesting than the conversations he had with Pycelle and Littlefinger last time. In terms of what I dislike about the chapter, though, speaking of House Baratheon, um, 
I get why Robert's not here. I get the point. He's an absentee king. He doesn't show up. He, he just, he hired Ned to do the job for him. But really noticeable on reread that he just completely drops out of the book for a while here. We have not seen him since Derry. We don't see him again till the hand's turning. It does fit with what happened at Derry. It's a nice little parallel with how Ned and Robert had this rift over the fates of Egan's, uh, of Rhaegar's children. Uh, and so they like, you know, didn't talk for a little while. And that's, that's kind of the same thing happening here where there's a rift in the wake of what happened in Derry. But he's, it's, he's just not, he's just gone for a, a huge chunk of the book. And it, I think it's, it's a problem because his relationships with his brothers end up being really critical to the story, but we don't really see them established. We're just, we're hearing secondhand about his relationship with Stannis, and we're not even hearing about it secondhand from him, which would be something. Yeah. But his, like that disastrous dynamic he has with Stannis ends up being really important to the wider story. And it's, it's noticeable on reread that he, Robert doesn't really interact with Renly at all. Like we don't see them yeah. having a conversation. We see them in the same room sometimes, but there's no back and forth, which is, is puzzling to me given how often Renly is framed as young Robert, both in description and dialogue. I don't know, maybe that's like a, you know, you, you can't meet your younger self, time travel paradox, antimatter will take over the universe sort of thing. But it is noticeable <laughs> to me that, and it stands out as kind of a missed opportunity, that in a chapter so much about the Baratheon dynamics and for these relationships that end up being really important, that Robert is just gone when his presence could have helped kind of clarify and enrich these relationships. That's that's my dislike too about this chapter is that you don't get a real sense of where Robert is, his actual physical location. Yeah. You could have something like, you know, like Robert is greeting all of the guests who are coming into the to the hands turning, but Ned has heard rumors that Robert is betting down with some noble lady from the Stormlands or from the Reach or something like that. That would kind of like augment Robert's character a bit. But you do kind of wish that Robert was there in some of these small council sessions so that you can get a kind of a richer sense of the Baratheon family dynamics that we were talking about. Having Renly there is fine, I think. And having Renly there to give us a shitty perspective on Stannis Baratheon is also fine, too. But you kind of want Robert there to maybe maybe Robert would say something that he would never say to Stannis like, Renly, you shut your fucking mouth because my brother held Storm's End for like a year. Something he would never say to Stannis like directly, but because Stannis isn't there and his presence isn't there, he would, it would kind of indicate that Robert did respect and did admire his brother's actions at Storm's End. Maybe that's not in the character of who Robert is, but I think it would be in keeping with him because Stannis isn't in the room to be like, kind of speak well of his brother. At least I would hope so, right? I, I agree. That would be very interesting. You could flesh out that relationship more. And uh, yeah, having Renly there is the important thing. I mean, the, the big takeaway plot-wise is Renly versus Stannis, because that's the dynamic that really matters in terms of where the plot's going to go in Clash of Kings. For me personally, the like that that fight and everything that goes into it and everything that comes out of it is like the core of a Clash of Kings from the title on down. That's what that, that book is about for me, is, is, is the, mm-hmm. the Baratheon brothers. But at the same time, so much of the kind of emotional weight and backstory and theme of that showdown is grounded in Robert. Like Stannis is described as having the shadow of a crown. You know, his beard was his, his close cropped beard is a reaction to Robert's. Renly is described as a ghost in a golden crown. Young Robert come again. Yeah. So much of what they're bringing to the table is about Robert. So getting a little more sense of how Robert feels about them directly, I think, would would enhance that. It's, yes. it's, it's not a fatal complaint. Like I said, I love the Renly Stannis stuff in Clash of Kings. Uh, but 
I think it could have been improved with a little more a little more Robert in the game. And like you say, it's just kind of logistically unclear where he is and what he's doing. Like it takes yeah. a throwaway line. Like he went down to Storm's End to to visit Edric Storm, or or how about like you know he went to he visited Bitterbridge because Renly wanted him to meet Marjorie, or he met you know he yeah. met Marjorie because like that's something that's not really brought up is what Renly's actual time his actual schedule is for for getting Robert to meet Marjorie. Like if this is the plan, why hasn't he already done it? So yeah. you could have done something in that regard, but uh, in, instead Robert just kind of drops out the book for a good like twenty chapters. Yeah, I mean, he's just totally gone there, and you kind of wish that he was around a little bit. As, but you know, as a little another little plug for our upcoming Patreon episode, we will be talking all about Robert Bratton at the end of this month. Uh, so that's going to be a lot of fun to kind of get to him as a character, and we will be talking a lot about kind of our suspicions about who he is and where he is at this juncture in the story and what he's doing and kind of his mentality there. But it would be nice to kind of see it on page for sure. I imagine he's on the street of silk right now. That's what, that's what, that's <laughs> yeah. where I imagine Robert is, which is a nice little like Robert's on the street of silk. Ned's on the street of steel. Uh, two kinds of swords, which is a, a you know, a, a double entendre. Martin makes a couple times throughout the series. Yep. Brandon's bloody sword or Jamie has that line when he dreams his hand is back on of. Uh, as good as sex, as good as swordplay. Uh, he talks about yes. being alive in battle and in bed. So these are the constant associations that Morton likes to make. Speaking of associations between swords and penises and all that good LML stuff, that <laughs> leads us into our, our foreshadowing and, and groundwork section. Yes. Uh, a couple things we've already uh, touched on. That Ned's downfall is being set up by him giving his household guard away. Mm-hmm. Already you see Ned kind of losing his own power, Janos Slint gaining in power, and that will be very instrumental to Ned's downfall later in the book. Yeah, and then we also get a bit of John Aaron's interest in his own investigation. And there's some kind of subtle, interesting things about John Aaron's investigation that even rereaders might not catch. Um, there's a great quote from this chapter where Ned is remembering about what the pot boy had heard the gossip was. And the quote is, the Lord had been quarreling with the king. The Lord only picked at his food. The Lord was sending his boy to be fostered on Dragonstone. The Lord had taken a great interest in the breeding of hunting hounds. The Lord had visited a master of armor to commission a new suit of plate armor, wrought in all pale silver with a blue jasper falcon and the mother of pearl moon on the breast. I think one of the more interesting things is about taking a great interest in the breeding of hunting hounds, because it seems to me what how it reads is that, that John Aaron is attempting to do a little bit of medieval genetic sleuthing and that is that he's being like okay so if i breed one hound with another hound what's the what color is the hound going to be because he's looking at the book that my mr Bicel presented to him about the lineages of the the great houses of the seven kingdoms and that long super awful title that the the maester put on it and he's being like okay so that's what the book says let me take a look at what the physical evidence is he's building a case you know as, as a detective does he's building a case he's got he's got uh, witness testimony He's got the book stuff, and now he's working on the physical evidence side, too. So he's going to have kind of these three tiers of the investigation, which, of course, is cut tragically short when Littlefinger and Lysa poison him. Yeah, that's a, that's a great little setup there. You're right. It comes so quickly. All these little details. He's quarreling with the king. He's riding off with Stannis. He's sending his boy to be fostered on Dragonstone. Yeah, he's putting his pieces in place uh, before he makes the case. And it's similar to what Vara says about Ned later on in the book in Arya 3, that he's, he's got the bastard, he's got the book, and soon he'll have the truth. Like that's, yes. the, that's the position John Aaron was in, and, and Ned is uh, retracing his steps, which is, again, that's that's yeah, classic Detective Noir stuff. It's what did the last guy do? Like, I'm going to go to all the places he went, talk to all the people he talked to. and Yeah, that's, that's good stuff. 
in a in a more kind of a heady visual abstract kind of stuff. We've got some Azora High-ish symbolism going on in this chapter when Ned rides uh, the Street of Steel, which is basically a description of a sword. Into the into the fire, Ned compares the forge at Tobomot's armory to a dragon's mouth and finds there a Baratheon bastard, much like the one Stannis will consider sacrificing to go full Azora High in the Storm of Swords. So I think you can see visually Martin kind of recreating the Lightbringer mythos in that setup. <laughs> and of course, uh, Tobomot will be involved in melting down uh, ice later on and reforging it into two swords, a scene which, uh, as our friend LML has discussed many times, is, is just full of Lightbringer symbolism and kind of gets at the the great metaphysical disaster that was going on in that era and how Azor Ahai might be involved. So, as always, we recommend his, his compendium of essays and videos on his website. But always. even if you're not into that stuff, I think the... The, the imagery of the of the sword and the fire comes through strongly with this chapter, especially since right at, right before that, Ned runs into Beric Dondarrion, introduced for yes. the first time in this chapter, who is, of course, uh, overloaded with Azor High symbolism and gets his own fiery sword later on in the series. Yes, it's a great little... These, these things that come up early in the books are really interesting to me because at some level, you kind of wonder how much of the story George had in mind at this juncture when he's writing in the, in the early to mid-90s. But it seems very much like that he had always had an Azora High type figure in mind. And I do love the symbolism that we get in this chapter of Ned riding through the Street of Steel into the fire of Tobamot's Forge. And I think that's really cool imagery that George builds into this chapter itself. And, you know, there's also maybe a bit more symbolism when it comes to the story that Ned reads from the book that he is he, he got from Greymaster Pycelle about the history of House Lannister. Yeah, there's a great little detail when he's talking about how the Lannisters got Casterly Rock. Quote, in the song's land was the fellow who winkled the Casterlies out of Casterly Rock with no weapon but his wits and stole gold from the sun to brighten his curly hair. Which is just a wonderful little hint at what's going on in the modern day because the, the modern day Lannisters have winkled House Baratheon out of the Iron Throne. And the fact mm-hmm. that they've... Uh, Lan stole the sun to brighten his curly hair, and of course the blonde hair of the Lannisters will be the big giveaway for Ned about what's really going on. And uh, as many people have suggested, what probably really happened at Casterly Rock, and this comes up in the World of Ice and Fire, is that uh, Lan uh, slept with one of the daughters and kind of inserted himself in the genetic line of House Casterly. Yes. And that is kind of in reverse what's happened with <laughs> the Lannisters in the modern day, where they've uh, where Jamie has planted a, a, a full Lannister bastard in Cersei's belly who will take the Iron Throne after Robert instead of a genuine Baratheon heir. So, again, it's it's interesting because we kind of already know this revelation about what Ned's leading towards, but Martin is still kind of laying in the groundwork for it and giving you the images of what's happening. He absolutely is, and it's a great way to symbolize and foreshadow what's going to be happening in this book as the Lannisters seize power at the end of A Game of Thrones and are still holding on to it, technically, by the end of A Dance of Dragons. So... Technically, yes. Always, <laughs> technically, technically. <laughs> technically in power. That's 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 Cersei to the core. Technically in charge. But is she? And then uh, one final bit of foreshadowing regarding Renly. Ned has that line. Could it be that Lord Renly, who looks so like a young Robert, had conceived a passion for a girl he fancied to be a, a young Lyanna when Renly is showing Ned the locket picture of Marjorie and asking if it looks like Lyanna? And of course... Uh, Renly's not, in fact, overcome with passion for Marjorie. He's overcome with passion <laughs> for her brother Loras. Uh, but he will marry her. 
despite that, uh, which yes. is ironically something Robert never got to do. Robert longed for his Liana, but never got to marry her. Renly presumably likes Marjorie just fine, but doesn't have this passion for her, but will end up with her. I've seen a lot of theories recently stating something to the effect that Renly had no idea what was going on between Cersei and Jaime and had no idea about the kids. But I think it is striking that in these passages that he, he seems to be very much in the know about what's going on between Cersei and Jaime and about the parents of the kids. And so much to the effect that in A Clash of Kings, Renly even admits that he was scheming to put Marjorie in Robert's bed. And the question I have for those who don't believe that Marjorie, that there was that Renly was aware of the twin cest was is basically what was Renly's plan here? Just put Marjorie in, in Robert's bed. That doesn't really accomplish much. Robert has bastards and he has mistresses all over the seven kingdoms. So what is he planning to do here? And it seems to me very likely, if not 100 percent accurate, that Renly's idea was to reveal the twin cest, put Marjorie in Robert's bed and then dispatch with the Lannisters and with Cersei and to have House Tyrell and House Baratheon work against the Lannisters and even at the time when Lannister potentially rose in rebellion. And so it seems that Renly did know about the Twincest and was utilizing Marjorie as the way to kind of build a case against the Lannisters and to have a queen in waiting essentially for Robert after the after Cersei was disposed of. I agree. I also think it's probable that Renly knew just because he's not stupid. Like, right. Varys says that this is basically an open secret at court, that anyone with eyes to see had figured it out by the time Tommen was born, and that the yes. only one who doesn't know is Robert, because he's blinding himself. Renly has been around Robert and Cersei and the kids this for a huge amount of time on the council. He has Edric Storm at Storm's End, so it, it, he's going to leap to the same conclusion that Stannis and John Aaron did uh, regarding the somewhat simplified genetics on display here. Yep. So, I, yeah, I think Renly was absolutely... I think what happened is that Renly knew about the twincest and was planning to leverage it when the plan was uh, Queen Marjorie for King Robert. When Robert died, that plan fell apart, and he neatly stepped into the role of, of Marjorie's uh, king and to provide Mace with a royal grandson. But but to, to do that, he had to disavow knowledge of the twincest because now he has to make this case for himself as, as uh, king by merit, and he can't... He, he benefits from both him and Stannis looking like usurpers and then saying it's yes. just a wash. And the, uh, so if, if, if he acknowledges the twincest, that gives leverage and weight to Stannis' argument. But, you know, I, I, you can tell that Renly as king by merit wasn't plan A. Robert marrying Marjorie was plan A. So that kind of undercuts Renly's argument that he should be king just because he's the best when that wasn't even his initial <laughs> plan. It's just a fallback yeah. plan. So how genuine can that possibly be? Not genuine at all. Very inauthentic, as is most things with the once and... Never King. Never King. Really. Um, <laughs> Once and Never King. I like it. I like it a lot. Like the Neverborn in, in Martin's uh, pitch letter. Yes. Yes. Uh, there is like one small line there that is very much a 90s-ism on George R. R. Martin's part, where Martin is hinting, in my opinion, and I think Emmett's as well, that Renly is in fact homosexual, in that after he talks about Renly fancying a girl much like Lyanna and having a passion for her. Martin then has this sentence that struck him as more than passing queer. So, <laughs> you know, it's very much a 90sism on Martin's part. Yeah. It, ah, we've 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 reclaimed queer to a large extent, but uh it's it's definitely being presented in in the 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 earlier sense 
here, I think. Not in a negative way. I think it's just Martin kind of poking us in the ribs and having fun a little at Ned's expense that Ned hilariously misinterprets what's happening here and thinks yes. that Renly has just developed a crush. But yeah, that's, that's, that's a nice little hint long before we get to uh, stuff like the Rainbow Guard or uh, right. when, when Jamie or when Oberyn calls Loras Renly's little rose or when Jamie just finally says, I'll, I'll stick that sword someplace Renly never found. Then you get to more blatant <laughs> stuff. And yep, Mar- Martin's writing on this is definitely of its time. It's not malicious. I don't really hold it against him. I do think it would be nice if he moved on from the wink-nudge bit and actually got into like a forthright description of two men in love instead of having them to always be off-screen or a tortured exile like John Connington. It would be nice to see gay romance in The Song of Ice and Fire instead of just implied gay things going on in the background. But um, it's not something I would call a problem. It's just something to note. Well, there is that one scene from Tyrion's second chapter from The Winds of Winter where you have the two sellswords from the Second Sons who are clearly in love and are expressing some physical passion with each other in front of Tyrion, which is, you know, it's it's kind of nice. You know, it, it's not put... It, it does have some weirdnesses as well. There, there's an age disparity between the two sellswords. And I can't remember their names at the top of my head. I'm sure someone will, will correct me and, and tell us who the, the names of the people are. But it seems like it, at least, you know, by the 2010s that Martin's seemingly kind of trying to put some more male-on-male or male homosexual relationships and kind of making it more explicit and making it less weird. And I think that's a good thing and a good thing that Martin's doing as he progresses in A Song of Ice and Fire. Oh, yeah. I think there's there's always room to improve, but there's so much, like, actively reactionary and hateful sexuality in the genre. Some fantasy novels, like the Xanth stuff, are just, are just make you smack your head into a wall. So uh-huh. I think Martin comes out ahead on that score. Um and like I said, even the stuff that I don't think particularly works about how he writes gay people comes off more as uh, an artifact of the times that are evolving quickly. And I think his heart is in the right place. And as, as I've said before, I like that Renly is not fey or like cowardly or, you know, skinny. Like he's, he's a masculine, impressive, physically accomplished guy. And he's also True. gay. Loris is a genuine badass and a warrior and is also gay. And uh, Martin does not... Martin is not indulged in the kind of like Braveheart stereotyping where they're mincing and cowardly all the time. So that's, I think, mm-hmm. I think he deserves credit for that. Absolutely. He was a man of his time and he was actually ahead of his time come the mid nineties because Braveheart was released in 1995 and yeah. Game of Thrones was released in 1996. That's a good so point. I think you can see Martin kind of pushing back against that commonplace thing in the genre where yeah, yeah. gay equals like lisping parody. So I, yes. I like, I like that he does that or that, or with Oberyn that on the one hand, he's kind of playing into you know, the the fiery, rapacious, uh, uh, black or brown man kind of stereotype with Oberyn. Uh, but at the same time, his, his, the way he talks about sex and sexuality and speaks to his uh, daughters about it is, is very refreshing and framed positively. So away from the specter of us talking clumsily about race and sexuality, let's go to something that has <laughs> no controversy to it whatsoever. As we said earlier in the episode, we had another question. This week that we wanted to save for the theory discussion section because we, we like it a lot and it's a fun topic to explore. And that is a question from Sir Jose Y who asks, Hey guys, this is a question for the next Eddard chapter. Who do you think paid Gendry's apprentice fee? Also, is there anything to the fact that his mother had, quote, yellow hair? What do you think, sir? Well, let's talk about who paid Gendry's apprentice fee because I think it's a very interesting question. Now, here's the full passage from Eddard 6 and I'll read it in full. Ned walked back to the house with the master. Who paid the boy's apprentice fee, he asked lightly. 
Mott looked fretful. You saw the boy, such a strong boy. Those hands of his, those hands were made for hammers. He had such promise and took him on without a fee. The truth now, Ned urged. The streets are full of strong boys. The day you take on an apprentice without a fee will be the day the wall comes down. Who paid for him? Uh, a lord, the master said reluctantly. He gave no name and wore no sigil on his coat. He paid in gold twice the customary sum and said he was paying once for the boy and once for my silence. Describe him. He was stout, round of shoulder, not as tall as you, brown beard, but there was a bit of red in it. I'll swear he wore a rich cloak. That I do remember. Heavy purple velvet worked with silver threads, but the hood shadowed his face, and I never did see him clear. So our description is a man who hides his face, who is stout, round of shoulders, not tall, brown bearded, with some red in it, wearing a rich cloak. Hmm. Emmett, does this remind you of someone in the, in the story? I, I, I couldn't possibly imagine, Jeff, but... Oh, yeah, there is that fellow who comes to see Ned in his next chapter, whoever that was, the, the visitor, yeah. quote, who was a stout man in cracked, mud-caked boots and a heavy brown robe of coarsest rough spun, his features hidden by a cowl, his hands drawn up into voluminous sleeves. Sounds like that guy. That That's, of course, Janice Lynn, right? Janice Lynn, or is it... Uh, I'm pretty sure it's Sir uh, Kyle Condon, I think. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That no one knows Azor High Reborn. He's that yeah, guy. Yeah, Azor High Reborn. Yeah. Yeah, him. it's him, yeah. it's him. God, good. Okay, well, we've solved this mystery for everyone. Moving on, folks. <laughs> Mission accomplished. But but no, of course, as we're we're talking about here, the visitor that Ned receives in the next chapter is none other than Varas the Spider. And Varas, that stout man with his features hidden by a cowl, is the disguise that Varas has as he's walking through the Red Keep talking with Illyrio, as we're going to see in the Game of Thrones Aria 3, where the quote is, even in heavy boots, his feet seemed to glide soundlessly over the stone. A round, scarred face and a stubble of dark beard showed under his steel cap, and he wore mail over boiled leather and a dirk and a short sword at his belt. And again, that motif is repeated in Eddard 15, Ned's final chapter, where Ned sees Varas as Rugen the, the Jailer, who has a, quote, dark stubble of a beard. And Varus himself also hints that he got Gendry out of King's Landing and of Clash of Kings, where he says to Tyrion, quote, there was another bastard, a boy older. I took steps to see he removed from harm's way. So Varus was the one who paid the apprentice fee for Gendry, which is great and all. But the question is, why was Varus so interested in saving Gendry's life? Why was he paying his apprentice fee? None of this makes any sense. Or does it? Dun, dun, dun. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, I think the case is as strong as you laid out the evidence there that uh, Varus is the one who, in fact, paid his apprentice fee, and that fits perfectly with him admitting to Tyrion that he got the kid out uh, to the Night's Watch. And yeah, the interesting question that is being raised is why. And I think you, this is a case where you can, as often as the case with Varus, you can see both kind of pragmatic and personal explanations. I lean towards the latter. Uh, the fact that Varys seems to develop a liking for Ned Stark and for Kevon, even as he kills him, that he tries to smuggle Tyrion to safety, suggests to me that Varys is, in a way, a lot like Melisandre, while he's utterly devoted to his cause and will sacrifice innocence to do it, that he knows at some level it's wrong and wants to save people when they're innocent and try to try to get them to some place of safety and has care and concern that has been kind of buried beneath his devotion to his cause. And I think smuggling uh, Gendry out of King's Landing could be an example of that. Uh, that it might be a parallel to Tobomot and 
how Tobomot comes off as super obsequious and unscrupled and inauthentic, but then has this care and concern underneath. I think that might be the case for Varys. Might. See, I would take the actual opposite approach to it. So again, for our listeners, you get some disagreement here on some, the Not a Cast. Some you, rare discord. Some discord. Yeah, exactly. Um, the the My take on Varys and why he saves Gendry's life and also why we find out in A Storm of Swords that he is sending gifts to Edric Storm in Storm's End as the boy is growing up is because he needs these kids and he needs them for when Aegon comes to Westeros. Because by the end of, even by the end of A Dance with Dragons, Tommen is still the king and he is still holding on to the title of king because he is the quote unquote son of Robert Baratheon. Whereas in fact, he's not. And in a society like Westeros, where the population is extraordinarily illiterate, I think one of the um, one of the evidence points there is that Lord Commander Mormont talks about how only was like one in 20 of the boys in the Night's Watch or one in 20 men of the Night's Watch can read and write and even fewer than that can lead. That to me speaks of a Westeros that is essentially illiterate. So you can't have a situation where you know, Ned Stark can read a book of the lineages and determine how, determine that Cersei's kids are illegitimate. You can't have that kind of what we talked about earlier about John Aaron's medieval sleuthing and that kind of examining the genetics there. You need to have some physical evidence, something that people can see, can experience. So having someone like Gendry and having someone like Edric Storm that are, that are black of hair, that have Robert's look and being like, look, these guys are Robert's kids. Robert only has kids that are black of hair. Cersei's kids are all blonde of hair. There is no way that Tommen and Marcella and Joffrey before them were were Robert's kids. The reality is that they are illegitimate and that they are products of incest. And here is the one true king who is, you know, of course, the son of Rhaegar Targaryen, which of course he's not. But, you know, having Aegon that is young Griff there be a physical symbol of a king and having all of the looks of a king. You know, I've talked about this a little bit recently about how Aegon will have the symbols of power. He'll have Blackfire, the sword Blackfire, which the Golden Company probably has and was probably going to be giving it to Aegon when he gets to Westeros. Having Aegon the Conqueror's crown, which potentially they could get from Dora Martell or one of the Dornish houses, whoever has Aegon's crown, which disappeared during the uh, the first Dornish War. All of these things speak to Vara's, in my opinion, crafting Aegon to be this perfect king with all the symbols of power. But he also needs that contrast of showing that the Lannister kids are Lannister kids. They're not Robert's kids. But here are actually Robert's kids. They're the ones who are black of hair. I've got Maya Stone. I've got Gendry. I've got Edric Storm. And and that's why, in my opinion, Varys gets Gendry out of King's Landing, that he catches wind of Cersei's plot to kill all of Robert's bastards in King's Landing. He needs to kind of preserve his evidence for the bastardy of Cersei's kids so that he can prop up Aegon come the Winds of Winter. That's entirely plausible. It does also fit with, as I mentioned earlier, the likelihood that Varys snatched up Tyrek. Tyrek could yeah. provide evidence either of the twincest or that Cersei... Uh, indirectly murdered Robert via the wine because, of course, Tyrek was also Robert's squire along with Lancel, as we see later in this book. Uh, what makes me kind of hesitate is, I don't know, it's it's a, it's a weird double step Varys has to do where, like, if he's intending to restore the Targaryen regime, what does it matter if Tommen is Robert's kid or not? 
Like he's yeah. still he's still rebelling against him. He Varus is bringing back a candidate who would declare the usurper's regime illegitimate in the first place. So mm-hmm. it, it I don't know how much it actually matters that that Tommen is the product of twin cis and isn't a legitimate Baratheon heir. Uh, it still could certainly sap away his support. Uh, it would also mean Varus has to. I don't know that he has eyes at the Night's Watch, or that he has to somehow get Gendry back or get him visible. Uh, he, you know, obviously he just wants him safe, like you say, and the Night's Watch is a way to do that. But it, it, well, this and this gets back to the ever shifting nature of Varys's plans. At this point, the Twincess is not public knowledge; it's not public debate. Right. But Stannis makes it so. So how much like does it matter now? Like Varys is going to come out and say, "Oh, by the way, Stannis was right." Sure, it's not really news at this point. So it would have to be like, yeah, he's he's using uh, Gendry and maybe Maya Stone is some indirect evidence of it. It, it. It's entirely plausible. It fits all the facts. I'm just not actually sure how much of, at this point, how much of an important revelation that really is uh, for Team yeah. Varys. But well, it, it, I mean, could, think, it could be critical in terms of the High Sparrow, but I think he already knows or believes that. Yes, yes, he does. Or he suspects as much because he's heard the evidence or he's the High Sparrow tells Cersei about the the allegations against Tommen and against Marcella. I do think when we look at some of what Varys is doing early on, we have to filter it through what's actually happened in the books as opposed to what will happen. Varys doesn't know that Stannis is going to claim the crown quite yet, and it seems that Varys's main goal at this point is to keep Robert alive, right? At least for a time, until he's actually ready to invade Westeros. And the thing about that is he talks with Illyrio in Arya's third chapter and they're both talking and he says, delay, and Illyrio says, delay, we're not ready. We're not ready. We're not ready. We're not ready. And Varys is like, I, I don't know how much longer I can delay because pieces are moving as more quickly than, than we anticipated, but I'll do my best to delay as, as, as best I can. And then the next chapter we get Varys then revealing the information about Danny's pregnancy and then Robert's decision to send the hired knife after after Daenerys and after Viserys as well. So, yeah, I, I totally get where you're coming from, that there is a personal component for Varys. And I think that does work in the character of Varys, who we know about Varys. And I think that personal connection of Varys being a potential, you know, Targaryen bastard, that is something that has been talked about in the fandom. That might work as well. And that, but I think that for Varys, a lot of the times, and for many characters for that matter, the personal and the political, they kind of intersect in, in such a way that Varys might have had a special care and affection for Gendry, for Edric Storm, but he also maybe had uses for them too. Yeah, that's an excellent point. These are not necessarily contradictory positions, uh, politics and personal intertwine with so many of the characters we're talking about in this chapter, Ned, Stannis, Robert, Tobomot even. So uh, that, yeah, that's an excellent point, sir. Yeah. Even when we disagree, we get along, guys. If, I know, right? It's, 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 so, it's so wrong. At it's, it's so, some point, we're just going to have to like start getting... We'll have to find some debate topic. Oh, we'll have to talk about real-world politics. and then we'll Yeah, get, there like, we go. We'll, then we'll, then we'll yeah. fight. Uh, the, we'll yeah, the, the real-world value of Keynesianism, a debate by two guys on a Song of Ice and Fire podcast. <laughs> it's going to be great. We'll, just, we'll have to just role-play Stannis and Renly at some point, to the delight of our fans. I think that's the, that's the only way. True that. 
So I think that about covers us for A Game of Thrones Edward 6. Thanks everyone for listening. Please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Acast, all the places where you find our podcasts. It really does help us and hopefully help you guys too in order to kind of build this community we're attempting to establish and having these ratings and reviews. It helps people find us as a podcast. And we do really appreciate all the ratings and reviews that we've gotten so far on all of the different venues that you can find podcasts and keep it up. We really appreciate it. Damn straight we do. You can uh, find us at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, on Twitter. Our email is Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. Personally, you can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brenna B. Fish on Twitter, Brenna B. Fish on Reddit. And my website is Wars and Politics of IceandFire.wordpress.com. And as a yet another plug for our upcoming Patreon episode, we will be talking all about Robert Baratheon in our special Patreon-only episode coming out on August 30th, 2018. And you can find our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Yes, sir. And in terms of the regular cast, join us next time for when the plot actually gets going with Catalan 5. Oh, man. I think we're going to actually have a debate about that one at the end of that chapter, whether Catalan was right or not, I think. It's going to be great. Oh, yeah. that's a, It's a critical chapter. It's a tipping point for sure. And I've been looking forward to it. I've been, I say Absolutely. that every, pretty much every week because I'm looking forward to all these chapters. Because these are good books, Jeff. Did you know about that? No, I didn't. They are? Apparently. Huh? Apparently. Uh, but yeah, join us for that. Uh, that'll be a great discussion. And thanks for listening, everybody. See you later.